What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. We were talking about neurology of cramping. So last time we had Dr. Kevin Miller on, we talked a lot about the hydration aspect of cramping and cramping science. So Mike McKinney and Dr. Miller are coming back to discuss the neurology, the um, just the nerve aspect of cramping and maybe some of the things we can do to prevent cramping from that side. And so if we approach it as each cramp is an individual event because there's several different independent factors for each person affecting those cramps that, but we can do certain things that'll help in general train. Uh, that's what Dr. Kevin Miller is going to talk to us about here. And like I mentioned last time, when we talked about cramping science with Dr. Miller, that, you know, he's a full professor at central Michigan university. He's had over 50 peer peer reviewed manuscripts, over 90 presentations on heat, uh, exertional heat illness. And then a lot of other, really important work as far as heat illness. Um, and he'll talk some about those things here as we discuss. Mike McKinney, my friend up in at Northeastern University, is going to be doing most of the questioning here. And so without much further, oh, wait, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping neurology. So if there's links or anything that we mention here, again, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping neurology. So Mike, um, actually, last time we started off with defining cramp. So Dr. Miller, why don't you just start and define cramp again, and we'll go from there. Sure, always a good idea to define what you're talking about before you have a discussion. So muscle cramps in the context of this discussion are the ones related to exercise. And so we know cramping can oftentimes be a side effect from some kind of underlying disease like diabetes or Machado Joseph's disease, or it can be even brought on by the treatment of such diseases like uh, people oftentimes going through dialysis will get cramping as a result of that treatment. So we're not talking about any kind of muscle cramp that occurs due to some kind of underlying disease uh, or uh, illness per se. We're talking about the cramping that occurs to healthy individuals during or after exercise. And these are involuntary, painful contractions of skeletal muscle brought on by something going on either in the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, or in the muscle, which we're going to talk about today, as brought on by exercise. And so those are the muscle cramps that we're going to be talking about because they're the most prevalent to uh, what we see in athletic training. Okay. And I think one of the things that we kind of left off on, we kind of touched a few times in the last podcast, but I think on this one, we really want to work towards kind of going a little bit further because I think we spent a lot of time on the metabolic side of things. So... Um, but there's this other theory um, that's supported by research as well that I think we've just called the neuromuscular theory. I don't know if it has a name other than that. Um, but can you briefly just, um, what is the neuromuscular theory? And maybe if we're talking that, that neuromuscular theory, how is that different than kind of the metabolic theory a lot of people subscribe to? Sure. So by far the most popular theory amongst medical professionals and the public is the dehydration electrolyte imbalance theory, which if you if you want to get caught up, uh, go listen to uh, the podcast we did a few weeks ago, where we spent a lot of time looking at what is the evidence or lack thereof that dehydration or loss of sodium and other electrolytes due to sweating actually cause cramping. And so uh, I would suggest that by far the evidence would say today that cramping during exercise is not 
solely due to dehydration or electrolyte losses. And we go into a great deal of depth. I think it was about an hour and a half worth of reasoning why it's unlikely due to dehydration. And so right around 1996, uh, Dr. Martin Schwalis from uh, University of Cape Town at the time uh, and his colleagues proposed a new theory for how cramping occurs during exercise. And they, they call it the altered neurological control theory. And so this theory essentially uh, boils down to abnormal control of the alpha motor neuron. And so if you remember kind of your basic uh, muscle physiology, you have nerves that innervate muscles and we call those alpha motor neurons. And the signaling to those muscles comes from those neurons, but the nerve itself gets lots of input from other nerves like muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs. And so this theory says that uh, as we exercise somehow, and it's very important to stress the somehow because even the authors of the theory aren't quite sure how this occurs, somehow fatigue uh, changes the normal activity level of muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs such that you get an imbalance in their activity. If, so if you think of normal alpha motor neuron control like a teeter-totter, on the one side you have excitation and on the other side you have inhibition. And normally when the muscle is at rest and uh, behaving normally, you have this kind of nice balancing of inhibitory and excitatory feedback. Well, the authors, uh, specifically Schwanlis, proposes that when we get fatigued, we get an imbalance in the teeter-totter favoring excitation. And you get less inhibition coming from uh, receptors like the Golgi tendon organs. And so if muscle spindles are overly excited, they would tend to increase the excitatory capability of the alpha motor neuron. And with fatigue, you would have a decrease in Golgi tendon organ activity. And again, you get a favoring of that teeter-totter towards excitation. And so if you have more excitatory stimuli coming to the alpha motor neuron, then that nerve is going to be sending more excitatory impulses to the muscle. And then you get a cramp ensuing. Okay. So looking at it, I think from that perspective, I think there's a lot of people probably trying to, like we've all talked about the, um, the complications of trying to nail down one specific source. Would you say this is somewhat of a similar um, effect that if you've got somebody, if we're just doing some type of e-stim treatment at a certain level threshold, then they contract their muscle with it, but they could actually cause a cramp because we're increasing um, excitatory activity in that localized muscle group? I, I certainly don't want to give people the impression that if you do e-stim, for example, on an ACL patient, that you're going to cramp them all the time. Obviously, that, that doesn't occur all the time. But we do have evidence from the literature that if you're doing electrical stimulation of muscles and even muscle motor points, that yes, you can cause uh, cramping to occur. And so some authors would even suggest that you do e-stim for your uh, therapeutic patients with the muscle either uh, in a stretched position or in a neutral position or isometric position so you can't allow that muscle to shorten because we know that you can't get a cramp if you don't allow that muscle to shorten. Mm -hmm. In other words, the muscle must concentrically contract in order to actually cramp. And so if you keep the muscle from doing that, then you will prevent cramping. 
Um, and looking at um, some of the uh, information, kind of bringing in some of the stuff we talked about with uh, Dr. Folks Godek, she brought up a uh, resting membrane potential and some of the changes that might potentially happen there. Can you speak to a little bit on what you might know um, with regard to that? Because we only briefly touched on changing this excitatory inhibitory threshold. Um, what research or either from your own or other are you familiar with affecting that, that aspect? Sure. So really there are three different, I guess you would say theories within uh, the literature about cramping as it relates to the neurology of cramping. And so one is a, a central theory that the cramp occurs in the alpha motor neuron cell body. Then you have what it would be like a peripheral theory, which suggests that the cramp occurs within the terminal branch of the motor neuron or the end of the axon, if you will. And then you have the uh, kind of third and kind of less favorable theory, which is that the cramp occurs at the actual uh, muscle fiber level. And so there's evidence for both central and peripheral mechanisms. And so what, what we are describing there, Mike, would be more along the lines of the central theory, mm -hmm. which I would suggest probably has more evidence for. Um, and so the idea would be that um, you have varying levels of thresholds, if you will, at the actual cell body itself or the soma of the neuron. And so the soma receives input from all these different receptors, like we said, muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs. And it takes that input and it decides whether it wants to continue that signal down through its own nerve, or if it's going to kind of balance out and not have enough excitatory stimuli to send a signal. And so with muscle cramping, we, we, we theorize that you have more excitatory impulses coming down through the cell. And so you get that muscle cell to contract and uh, involuntary cause uh, a cramp. And so with the central theory, the idea is that the actual cell body itself, the nerve cell body itself, has two different levels of uh, threshold for depolarizing. And so it uh, is oftentimes called a bipolar state. So it actually has like two different states at which it would fire. And so the central theory would say that with cramping, the normal cell body doesn't fully hyperpolarize like it should. Instead, it remains slightly more uh, excitable, if you will. It's under the level of you know, propagating that signal, but it's not fully repolarized like it should. And that might be due to chloride. It could be due to potassium, maybe. Uh, we're still trying to figure out the exact uh, reasoning for why that bipolar state might exist. And so with cramping, because of that lack of full repolarization, you get an easier uh, depolarization occurring following an excitatory impulse, and then you get the muscle cramp to ensue. Uh, with a peripheral uh, argument, you kind of take out the soma itself and you concentrate on the motor nerve end plate or the nerve terminal and all the evidence suggesting that that's where the cramping occurs. And like I said, there's there's good evidence for both sides. Uh, when we look at uh, like EMG tracings, for example, it seems like cramp EMG tracings very closely mimic normal maximum voluntary contractions which you can't get uh, without the soma cell body behaving normally. And so the bipolar state people would point to that evidence as saying, well, look, this is evidence that uh, the cramp is occurring within the soma, 
or at the spinal cord level because the tracings look very similar. Mm-hmm. When we look at inhibition of uh, cramping, for example, we can actually stop a cramp from occurring if we stimulate the muscle's tendon. And so when we block that with like lidocaine or something else, then we can't get cramps to occur as strong or last as long. And so if you knock out all of the afferent activity, like from Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles by using that nerve block, if those things are important to the genesis of cramping, then if you block that, you shouldn't get any cramps. And so we know from the research studies that you can actually still get cramps, even if you block those types of things. And so that would be evidence for the peripheral nerve theory. But because the cramps are less intense and they don't last as long as if you don't operate with the nerve block, you would say, well, there's probably some involvement then from those afferents. So Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles probably do play a role because look at the huge change in the strength and the intensity of the cramp and how long the cramp lasts when you don't block them. And so like I said, there's probably evidence for both sides of those coins. And then even at the muscle fiber level, if you were to uh, give somebody the drug uh, diazepam or uh, curare, for example, blocks uh, acetylcholine receptors. So if you have curare, then you can't get a muscle cramp because it's competing with the acetylcholine at the muscle fiber level. And so there's probably truth to all of the theories, even static stretching, for example. If you static stretch a muscle that is cramping, well, it goes away. Well, if I do a nerve block and I think that static stretching works by increasing Golgi tendon organs, kind of like what we talked about last time, mm-hmm. if I do a nerve block, and that feedback from the Golgi tendon organ is not getting to the spinal cord anymore, well, then static stretching shouldn't relieve the cramp mm-hmm. if the uh, central theory is true, but it does. And so even with a nerve block, we can still stop people from cramping. And so like I said, there's, there's good evidence for the peripheral side. There's good evidence for the central side. Um, trying to figure out neurology of cramping is a little bit like trying to figure out the plumbing for the empire state building it's just very complicated there are pipes coming from everywhere there's input coming from everywhere the brain oftentimes we kind of take out the brain from this whole scenario but muscle spindles have uh, gamma activity so that they can be uh, adjusted with their tension and so the brain also has a role to play in all of this and so a lot of times we think of this as like one cell, one muscle fiber and what's going on there. But this is a very complicated system and we are still very much trying to figure out what exactly is going on. So, Yeah, and that's kind of what I, I always look at with like on this, the neurological side of things because um, at least in clinical practice, we've thrown all the metabolic solutions at people and still have this problem. So I just wonder um, at what point is now the brain adjusting to um, – make that cramp occur easier. Obviously our feelings, <laughs> the conscious part of the brain, like of course that athlete does not want to cramp easier, but this is a, a repetitive um, process that keeps occurring. So I wonder at what point does it stop going all the way up the chain and down and this now becomes reflex. Um, like now it's a reflex to that activity as opposed to um, a learned response, I guess, if there's a difference between those two. Right. We can even talk about, you know, there are so many ways that 
uh, muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs are impacted. And so we know that the alpha motor neuron is kind of our kind of central base, if you will, in this kind of discussion that we have all of these different lines of communication telling the nerve what it should do because it's eventually going to tell the muscle what to do. And so oftentimes I think people forget that the muscle spindles also have things acting on it, telling it what to do. And so when you factor in things like pain, for example, or the psychology of the human at the time and stress and even uh, metabolism and all that stuff going on, telling the afferents what they should be doing. And then those afferents tell the nerve what it should be doing. All these things are playing a role in a very complicated kind of dance, if you will, that eventually works its way out in either a cramp or not. And so we've got good evidence from uh, some experimental studies showing that when you inject pain-causing agents into a muscle, a lot of times people get cramps. And uh, stress, for example, increases EMG activity above normal resting baseline. We know that crampers tend to produce less inhibition than non-crampers from Golgi tendon organs. And so the genetic piece of all of this has to play a role as well, because if I'm a cramper, I may just not be able to produce as much Golgi tendon organ activity as a non-cramping counterpart. And so again, kind of last time we talked about varying levels of susceptibility to cramping. And if it's a multifactorial uh, problem, then you just shift that threshold with every factor that occurs to you during exercise. So maybe, you know, I'm predisposed to cramping because I have a genetic predisposition to produce less Golgi tendon organ inhibition. And then I experience fatigue of my muscle spindles and maybe the other afferents and then I cramp. And so maybe somebody else who has a better genetic blessing doesn't experience cramping, even though they experience similar amounts of fatigue of their neurological system. So it's a very complicated uh, problem that we're really just trying to focus on, I would say, within the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. What do you think, um, just because obviously, like I we pointed it out, I think, in the last podcast that, um, and I think you just said it too, that one, one isn't necessarily a better theory than the other. It's always complicated. But um, I guess along the lines of when we talk about limitations of metabolic research, what are the biggest limitations I think that face us right now on the neuro neuromuscular side of things? Like where does this research like fundamentally stop like real from a realistic standpoint? Right. So I think uh, the problems with the altered neurological control theory uh, really come down to kind of our studying techniques and whether those techniques are actually valid to the exercise model. And so we know that cramping in and of itself is really unpredictable. They're spontaneous and they're hard to study because of those factors. And so when we induce cramps in the laboratory setting, for example, we try and control for as many factors as we can. And then we induce them a lot of times with electrical stimulation. And that tends to be a very reliable model for studying cramping, but oftentimes we don't know if those types of cramps that are induced with electrical stimulation also correlate to what we see in the field with exercise. And so there's a disconnect right now between the external validity, if you say, of you know what we see in the field versus what we do in the lab. And so uh, we don't have great animal models to study cramping. 
And even in the human models that we use, there's some disconnect between what we see in the field and what we do in the laboratory. And so a lot of times what we see in the field, we study blood chemistry and body weight losses and sweat characteristics and all that stuff. And that's very valuable because it increases the generalizability of our findings. But it's really hard to study cramping and control for those types of things in the field. And so right now, I would say the biggest limitation is the disconnect between the clinical generalizability of the findings from the lab. And when we talk about the theory specifically, uh, the altered neuromuscular control theory really lives and falls with this idea of fatigue. And so uh, uh, Martin Schwellness and his group kind of expanded the theory back in 2009 to include other things besides just fatigue that may alter the excitability of the alpha motor neuron. So a lot of the recent research from say 96 until 2009 continued to occur. And so uh, Dr. Schwalens adjusted the theory. And so now if you read kind of the new altered neuromuscular control theory, it would suggest things like, uh, you know, muscle injury. So if you have an athlete that has previously been hurt, then there may be pain involved. And as we've talked about just now, pain seems to increase the likelihood of cramping. Mm -hmm. And so there are other factors trying to play their role in the central nervous system and its functioning. And so when you think about altered neuromuscular control, there are lots of ways you can alter neuromuscular control and lots of different cells that may play a role in that. So fatigue in and of itself is really hard to study. And so how that fatigue is impacting these muscle cells, whether or not the fatigue we induce in the lab with say electrical stimulation causes changes to muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organ activity, that part's really difficult to study. Mm -hmm. And so very long-winded way of saying the generalizability part right now is the part where we struggle. We know lots of people get fatigued during exercise, mm -hmm. but they don't cramp. So if fatigue causes cramping due to a complex uh, changing of neuromuscular control, then you would see lots of people getting cramps because they're tired, but mm -hmm. they don't. And so trying to figure out the exact mechanisms of how fatigue works and which nerves are being impacted and how those nerves alter control, that's the, I would say, holy grail of uh, muscle cramping research going forward in the next 50 years. Yeah, I was gonna say, you just answered the question before I asked it, is it's like with these limitations, what do we wish we could have? Um, but I I'll get back to that a little bit, but I think looking around the whole fatigue issue is, I know a lot of ATs probably are at this point, we're about 20, 25 minutes into this, is like, yeah, okay, so how do, <laughs> how do I affect these types of things in you know my daily clinical practice? And one of the things I think is a, um, it's unfortunately common is I think people have a tendency to avoid certain types of exercises that may at one time have resulted in a cramp. And if we're talking like there's a neuromuscular control theory, that might not be ideal to avoid a type of exercise. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So it's really important to first preface all of this by saying uh, we have, to my knowledge, very little evidence for hmm. how we can prevent cramping utilizing exercise. So if there are any master's students kind of thinking about future projects going forward, I mean, this is an area ripe for research. And so if the neurological control theory is true, then if we can impact the endurance, if you will, of these muscle afferents, then in theory, we might be able to stop cramping. 
On the other side of that, uh, I think there's good evidence to suggest that cramping is due to a muscle contraction that is outside of the norm for that athlete. Maybe it's a more intense contraction or the body is positioned in a biomechanical way that's abnormal for the person that causes uh, cramping to occur. And so it's a, an area right for further research. I don't have a lot of great suggestions for people in this area because there's just no evidence. Um, we certainly know from say case studies, if you will, that athletes that are very well conditioned, very well trained, they still get crampy. And so when you think of say your, your typical uh, high school setting, if you're an athletic trainer in the secondary school setting, you're trying to prevent cramps in these kids and you start focusing on exercise, well, it's, it's hard to recommend exercise when you have pro athletes like LeBron James that are seemingly cramping very frequently during exercise. And so why does LeBron James cramp? I mean, the guy's just super fit, and he's obviously not a slacker. I mean, if you ever watch a LeBron James game, like the 2014 NBA Finals in San Antonio, where LeBron is running up and down the court doing everything and he cramps and he can't move anymore, it's not because that day he decided to work hard, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're unsure is what I'm saying to everybody. And so this is an area that we still have to figure out. And so my best advice to people, when you're thinking about preventing cramping, again, it comes back to taking a multifactorial approach and even just exercise and doing maybe plyometrics and activities that are with exercise that are thought to target the central nervous system, that might help. Mm -hmm. But it might not help if your athlete's factors, their individual recipe, if you will, does not include maybe fatigue as a way of getting cramping. And so one of the things we left off last time was, you know, this idea of a multifactorial nature or a multifactorial etiology to cramping. And fatigue might not be the be all end all. You know, again, maybe it's fatigue, but maybe it's fatigue with something. And it's the figuring out how the factors work and whether or not every factor is equally important to the recipe for getting a cramp. And my thought process is no, they're probably not all equally weighted uh, because like I said, when we do control experimental studies and we dehydrate people uh, with say exercise, but we leave a muscle alone, like what we've done in the past, we can still get them to cramp, but they're, you know, not fatigued and but they are severely dehydrated so whether the factors all contribute equally is a big matter of debate and i would say again the idea for the next 50 years is trying to figure out which factors contribute to cramping and then how important are those factors to cramping and then how do those factors interplay with each other mm -hmm. and which ones are say the best at playing friends when it comes to cramping we still have to sort all of that out so unfortunately for everybody listening right now, I can't give you a lot of great advice. Like you should do plyos or just increase training frequency or any of that, because again, everybody's unique and everybody's recipe for cramping is probably unique too, which means you have to take a very unique approach to treatment and prevention. That's usually what I always um, like recommend to people too, is especially like the plyometric side. So we at least know we don't have direct one-to-one -one evidence of this exercise solves this cramp. But we at least know exercises like plyos can affect um, 
some of the like GTO receptors and things of that nature, maybe in a roundabout way. So it's like, we're not doing harm necessarily because we still have to train people <laughs> back to um, rehab them and train them in their practice and competition settings. And so maybe there's exercises. Yeah, they got a cramp at the fourth quarter of a football game, but that doesn't mean we should avoid a plyometric on Monday or Tuesday um, necessarily just because a cramp occurred. And I think it's that more, there's an active approach for muscle cramping. And like, I think we talked about the case study of the triathlete where they just did a one day a week glute activation protocol, one day, just one day for 26 weeks. And it, I don't like to use the word cure because I doubt it cured, but it severely reduced the amount of um, cramp incidents I think that that person had. Um, but one of the things I think that you brought up is like these different levels of evidence is, um, and maybe this isn't specific to cramping itself, but I think there's a discussion to be had on if we hinge our, our opinion on evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice, there's varying levels of research, obviously, but when we look at the different levels of research, it might not actually support the intervention. So one theory might have lower level four, level five evidence, and one theory might have level one or two, but as you just demonstrated, there's still, even with level one or two evidence, there's still some gaping holes <laughs> in that research from a clinical practice standpoint. So um, what's your advice on that end? Because I, everybody that talks to me for five minutes knows I pretty much, <laughs> I get really on a soapbox about literature appraisal. But um, but then how do we reconcile that? Like I would be just dismissive of something because it's a lower level evidence, but I also wouldn't be blindly accepting of maybe a level one or two study as well. And I think that's a good approach. I think you need to weigh and consider evidence as it currently exists. And uh, what I hope athletic trainers uh, are not going to take away from this is your your experience is very valuable. Your clinical work and what you do with athletes and what you see every day is supremely valuable. And that is evidence. And that is evidence-based medicine. So your prior experience and your uh, working with athletes on a day-to-day -day basis provides great evidence for going forward and doing what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so evidence-based medicine, and I hope nobody thinks this, uh, is not researchers like myself telling you what to do because this is what the science says. Okay, so evidence-based medicine is a combination of, you know, research and also clinical practice and clinical experience and education and kind of working all of that together towards the betterment of our patients and our athletes. And so when it comes to, you know, should you do something because the evidence today from the science says you should do this? Well, that's nice, but uh, I think some data would suggest that 50% of what we do today is probably going to be proven wrong 10 years in the future. And the problem is we don't know which 50% is wrong. So mm -hmm. we teach students and we give talks like this to everybody and we just put a disclaimer out there that, you know, this is a a river of knowledge. It's always moving. It's not a stagnant thing that we can just hang our hat and say, you must do this. Because obviously evidence always evolves and hopefully it gets better and we get stronger. Um, but I would say to people that, you know, you weigh and consider information, even this podcast. You know, we try to be very, I think, transparent and here's what we think we know and here's what uh, we think we should do in the future, but that stuff may change. And so I think like many injuries, this is a multifactorial approach. And I just think that when it comes to cramping, for instance, we've been so accustomed to treating it the same way 
for the last hundred years that when we have new evidence like this, it, it shakes people up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so what I, what I hope the people listening to this podcast take away is that, you know, weigh and consider. Um, and if your experience is that, you know, you have athletes that even after you do hydration and nutrition, that they are still getting cramping, you know, consider some other things that might be going on. And so, yeah, there are varying levels of evidence. And today you might have weak evidence for this theory, but in the future that might change to very strong evidence. And so I would say the state of affairs today is that we have more evidence and stronger evidence that cramping is caused by changes in their nervous system rather than just loss of body fluids or electrolytes. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I tend to be, say, more moderate in my viewpoints than some other folks. And so I will never say dehydration doesn't play a role at all in cramping. I don't believe that either. Uh, I think we shared some research, uh, even from my group, uh, where we sweat tested 350 Division I collegiate athletes in 11 different sports. And in 10 sports, sweat rate and sweat electrolyte concentrations did not predict who was and who was not a cramper, but it was predictive in American football. And so why is it predictive in one sport and not another? Well, we still got to figure that out. But dehydration influences the body in more than just one way. We know people get tired quicker if they're dehydrated. We know that drinking Gatorade does more to the body than just adds sodium. It adds energy. And so there's some research I think just came out of Japan that showed that when people drink a carbohydrate electrolyte drink, that the cramps were harder to, uh, or uh, they did not come back as quickly or they're, they're, they were mitigated in a way. And so a lot of people say, well, it must be the electrolytes. Well, no, there's other stuff in there besides just electrolytes. And so trying to marry how these things work with all the different theories is uh, challenging. And so we have a ways to go with that. So I would say to people, you know, be patient, but weigh and consider what you see now and then adjust appropriately in your clinical setting. What has been the, um, I guess in your opinion, like the, the most recent thing you've read that was like, wow, that's new. That's something that I hope goes further. Cause we always have that, like something will pop up in research or maybe even an abstract from a, a conference. Do you have anything like that? When I say recently, let's say, I don't know, last three to four years, because I know <laughs> publication windows sometimes delay some of that. Sure. So I think um, I just kind of mentioned this, uh, the Japanese paper that just came out. They measured threshold frequency mm-hmm. and they dehydrated people and they measured cramp threshold frequency. And they confirmed what the folks in my lab uh, did back in 2010 and I think in 2012. When we did mild dehydration and severe dehydration. So they found threshold frequency was unchanged by dehydration. So that was good. Uh, but then they also found that when they, when the subjects drank water and not a carbohydrate electrolyte beverage, so just natural spring water, it seemed to make people more susceptible to cramping. So threshold frequency or the number of electrical stimuli that it took to get these people to cramp again went down, meaning it was easier to cramp people when they were being rehydrated with spring water. And it was the opposite effect with the carbohydrate electrolyte. And so the authors said, or they, the reasoning for this, they said was because of the electrolytes 
in the carbohydrate electrolyte drink was responsible for the increase in threshold frequency or the decrease in susceptibility to cramping. And so the clinical message from that article would be, well, you should drink sports drinks because they will decrease your susceptibility to cramping. Uh, but when you look at their data and you look at the electrolyte concentrations in the blood, all of their electrolyte concentrations were normal, within normal limits. Mm. And as we talked about last time, when you drink something like a sport drink, it's not immediately available to the body. You know, it's got to be absorbed and passed through the stomach and eventually work its way to muscles that are cramping or uh, behaving normally. And that takes time. And so one of the things I think the authors could have done better on is investigating or theorizing on maybe it was the sugar and not the electrolytes. If your blood is normal before and after you drank the sport drink, and but you add sugar, and we have good evidence from other studies that, you know, carbohydrate mouth swishing, for example, mm-hmm. will prolong exercise performance or improve exercise performance. So carbohydrates and sugar and energy was something I think they did do a great job of theorizing may have been the reasoning why the people's threshold frequency actually went up. And so that was kind of interesting to me seeing that data. And I think that just came out, uh, I think it was in the British Medical Journal Open Access in the last six months, might have been even in the last month or so. Uh, So that stuff is kind of very interesting. And again, I think this is an area very ripe for research, uh, the treatment and prevention of cramping. Uh, it's kind of the holy grail. What can you do or what can you consume that will prevent cramping? And again, trying to figure out what factors are involved in cramping is kind of where we need to go in the future. And so we're starting to see uh, other investigators get away from the what is the cause of cramping and now start to focus more on what is the best way to treat and prevent. Who is doing, um, just so I guess we can kind of just We'll probably have like a list Jeremy will have after the fact, but which which researchers um, besides yourself, because I know you do stuff as well, but um, do you find doing, I guess, the most research recently? Like, obviously, we have this wellnesses and everybody of the world leading up into this point, but who's doing, like, who are some of the newer names that people are doing really good work? Well, there aren't very many of us <laughs> <laughs> that, that study muscle cramping, uh, and I think a lot of that is because muscle cramping, I mean, it doesn't kill anybody, right? And so uh, a lot of folks think of it as a, uh, you know, a minor problem or a minor heat illness. And so it doesn't receive a ton of funding. And so you don't see a lot of people spending as much time as say I do looking at muscle cramping itself. But as far as the, the usual names, if you're doing a PubMed search or a Google Scholar search for cramping, uh, Martin Schwellness is probably... Uh, one of the most active cramp researchers, in addition to myself. Um, there's a fellow out in Germany. Uh, his last name escapes me. His first name is Michael. Um, I guess I can pull up my endnote very quickly. Hopefully. <laughs> I was not trying to stump you. <laughs> uh, and Sandy folks, Godek, uh, mm-hmm. who you're going to interview again in the future podcast. Uh, she does uh, great work in hydration and cramping. Um, yeah, and I think that's what we talked a little bit about her is uh, with her is she's trying to, I think, kind of what you were talking about, those 
unstudied areas of cramping research, trying to maybe add to that body of knowledge and or just body of data. And so I think she talked about going back in time and just looking at data sets they've had over the past, and she's been in AT for 30 years doing research for most of it. So um, just revisiting some of those data points. Right, the fellow out in Germany, uh, his name is, I believe, Michael Berenger. Uh, he's been doing some electrical stimulation, like can we prevent cramping by causing cramping? So it's a kind of very, I would say, very unique approach toward cramp prevention that I should cause cramps because if I cause Ugh. cramping, I'll somehow prevent you from cramping in the future, which I say would be very controversial because uh, people uh, in the literature as well as in my lab, if we cramp you, you become easier to cramp, not more difficult to cramp. And so I would very, very hesitant about advocating that we should cause cramps to prevent future cramps because I just, I see it everywhere in the literature and even in my lab that if you get a cramp, your central nervous system increases its excitability. Mm -hmm. I think we talked about that maybe a little bit last time. <laughs> my own calf. Excitability, <laughs> uh, you stay excitable for at least 60 minutes. That's where we stop measuring our subjects. And so once you get a cramp, and that's all we do to people, All we, or at least we did two studies where all we did to people is we cramped them. So they came in, they cramped their own muscle, and then we measured their susceptibility to future cramps with things like the H reflex and cramp threshold frequency. And people were easier to cramp for at least 60 minutes. And so uh, we said this is likely the reasoning why athletic trainers continue to battle cramping during the same exercise session. So if your guy cramps in the third quarter, chances are he's going to cramp in the fourth quarter if you allow him to continue to exercise at the same intensity and duration that he was doing prior to his first cramp. And so cramping in and of itself outside of exercise and sweat loss and all the stuff that we normally think of when we think about exercise seems to impact the susceptibility to future cramping. As far as other folks, uh, Marco Minetto, he was uh, an Italian researcher has done a lot of stuff with the uh, cramp theories and has done a lot of stuff with uh, laboratory type research on cramping and inducing cramps with electrical stimulation, very similar to what I do. Um, and those I would say are probably your biggest players right now. Uh, Martin Schwellness, Mike Berenger, myself, Marco Minetto. And then you get a, occasionally a few other folks that will pop up, but have not published very much in this area. So Jeremy, where we're at right now, are there any questions popping up or anything of that nature? There's or do you actually have any questions? one question that I had. Um, so my, I think, 86-year-old grandmother-in-law, uh, she heard that we were, I was doing this cramping science, and she asked, well, I need to talk to you about my leg cramps, right? And so talking to my mother-in-law, she's like, she doesn't drink any water, only enough water to take her medicine, that kind of thing. And she's also not very physically active. She uses a uh, cane to, to walk pretty much from the room to the living room to sit and from the living room to the bathroom to the room to the renal. So really very limited activity. And so as we're talking about, you know, the the training the muscles and the hydration and all of those could be a factor there. Um, she just recently moved from her house in Louisiana to, to live with my in-laws um, and so there's also that stress and, you know, it could be the sleep. So is there, I guess, what, what would you say to, to me as I'm kind of coaching her up saying, well, this may be what's happening, right? So what are your thoughts there? 
old people cramps. Right. So nocturnal cramping tends to occur more frequently in the elderly populations. Uh, when we get into elderly populations, I mean, kind of all bets are off, right? And so with elderly patients, we know that their nerves and their motor end plates start to break down. And so uh, the area of nocturnal cramping is another kind of understudied phenomenon as well. But uh, when we talk about age-related changes to the human body as uh, we get older, uh, one of those things is we start to see the nerves and the neurons start to break down. And so whether that plays a role in cramping, I think it's unclear, but it's been suggested in that type of literature. Uh, usually older folks tend to suffer from nocturnal cramping or nighttime cramping. And one of the things that we do know about sleep is sleep is centrally mediated Right? So if you are in a dead sleep, but you get awoken from that sleep by a cramp in your calf, while you have not been exercising, right? you're not being dehydrated by exercise in that situation. So when we talk about neurology of muscle cramping, I think sleep and nighttime cramping is a, an interesting piece of evidence that maybe exercise-associated muscle cramps are also very much centrally mediated and so if you get a set awoken from a dead sleep by a cramp your brain and central nervous system are still active otherwise why would you cramp right and so uh to your grandmother and all the say older folks that might be listening to this podcast i would say uh you know talk to your doctor because there could be underlying medication usage issues as well that are leading to those cramping and so uh, just like exercise associated muscle cramps to those folks, I would say, you know, talk to your physician and the physician is going to have to take a very thorough approach, just like athletic trainers with exercise associated muscle cramps. We have to figure out what your grandmother's individual risk factors are. So we'd have to know what medication she's taking. We'd have to know what her activity level is like, what her stress levels are like, what's her psychological mindset. Uh, when do the cramps occur? Do they occur only at night? Do they occur when she does abnormal activities? And so we really have to dig in and try and figure out those individual factors so we can figure out what your grandmother's recipe, no different than what we would try and do with a healthy 20-year-old football player. Yeah, that'll work for, for me for now. So go ahead, Mike. So I think that's pretty much... Um, that's really all I had because what I my, my goal was to kind of get the you know finish off kind of that neuromuscular theory and kind of maybe bring it all back <laughs> between both theories and I think we did a pretty good job there. Um, so I guess Dr. Miller, is there anything that you've been itching to say that I forgot to ask about? Because I know that happens all the time. <laughs> like, please ask me this, and I just forgot. <laughs> no, I would I would just reiterate to everybody, kind of like I think how we finished the last podcast is. Um, as with most injuries that we try and treat with athletic training, you know, you have to take an individualized approach. And I realized that in the area of muscle cramping, it's very easy to recommend, you know, the usual suspects of, you know, you just got to drink more, you got to eat better. Um, but that's something that uh, we can't do. We can't just give generalized treatment advice. And so like in the 2014 uh, high school student deaths, they were, killed because they thought they were trying to prevent cramping the best way, which was by over consuming water and sport drinks. And so uh, 
if you're an athletic trainer working with an athlete that's susceptible to cramping and frequently cramps, you really got to do your homework and treat this just like any other injury and start documenting when that cramp occurs, take a very thorough history and try and figure out what the factors were that precipitated that cramp. And then again, you look for patterns in those factors as you go forward and the athlete cramps again. And then you can hopefully target those factors with your interventions to hopefully stop them from occurring in the future. And so we want to get away from these kind of shotgun methodologies. And I'll even throw uh, pickle juice out there. Pickle juice is not your silver bullet that's going to work for every single athlete. And so while it might work for some people, um, it may not work for others. And so it's certainly not a cure-all uh, drug for everybody. And so there's certainly other precautions that you need to take, especially if you have, say, a predisposition to high blood pressure. And so we have to dig into individual risk factors, figure out why our athletes are cramping, and then target those individual risk factors specifically and do a better job, I think, of documenting these occurrences over time. I do have one question that uh, came up last time, but I didn't get to ask it. So um, Dr. Sandry folks, Godek mentioned, like if the athletes have water and the free access to it, then most of the time they're going to be safe from that cramp, like during practice or games, that kind of thing. Um, and so at what point does that free access to water or like drinking to high, drinking to thirst, just whenever you feel like you want water, you get some, does it become like a, a learned response or like a nervous thing. Cause I drink a lot of water. I'm pretty sure that I'm not getting dehydrated just sitting here talking, but I might drink like three cups of water just because, Oh, Hey, there's water there. I need some, Hey, I need some, I need some. So at what point does, does that become a nervous habit that causes a problem? Kind of like what you said, the over drinking. I think, um, I can talk a little bit about that. Just at least from what I've noticed from the clinic, clinical standpoint is that's heavily based in drinking behavior. And there's an entire block of research on drinking behavior that um, I'm not an expert in and I don't want to speak too much on that, but you can definitely see athletes that are chronic crampers. They're looking for anything to solve that problem. And that's easy to do. It's readily available. It's there. Um, and this is a study Dr. Miller pointed out from those Japanese authors. Maybe there's something to that. Um, that if it's a sports drink, um, not necessarily water, that, hey, maybe there is something there that might work for somebody. But um, unfortunately, the other side of that is um, can be quite problematic from a health health standpoint. So I think that's where we come in. And we always talk about athletic trainers, our role is to educate. Um, but I think it's educating in a way that, hey, drinking the thirst is okay. And if you're not thirsty, it's okay not to drink water. I think there's this perception that if you I talked to Miller said the dehydration when we talked about last time to actually cause death as a result of dehydration is probably never going to happen in the, the window athletes participate in a daily school practice or game. Like we're talking stranded in the Sahara levels of dehydration here, not, oh man, I didn't get all the water I wanted during the halftime period, so to speak. Um, so I think it's about us being realistic and investigating, I think, some of those methods so we can provide the information because our athletes trust us. And if we say, hey, if you do this X, Y, and Z, you know, we'll take care of the cramp, but we'll also prevent some other things that will be uh, far more detrimental to sport participation than a muscle cramp. I think to piggyback on that too, it's important to point out that hyponatremia is pretty rare. I think where 
we get really concerned is we're starting to see hyponatremia occur in some of your team sports, like your American football, whereas hyponatremia within the last 50 years was usually a disease you only saw in like your ultra endurance endeavors, like your big triathlons, ultra distance races, that type of thing where people have many more opportunities and they stop at say every fluid replacement tent and they drink you know, 500 mils of fluid and they just stop every chance they get and they gain weight over the course of a race. And so the fact that that hyponatremia is bleeding over into your team sports, I think is very, very scary. And that's what we saw in 2014 uh, with the two high school American football players. And so like Mike mentioned, the act of drinking is there's so many social aspects to it. Like if you're going out on a Friday night and you go to a restaurant and you order a drink, a lot of times it's not because you're thirsty, right? Other people that you're with are drinking and so it's a social behavior. So there's social behaviors involved with drinking and consuming things. And uh, I think what uh, Sandy's point was trying to get at is, if you wanna try and prevent hyponatremia, allow people to drink when they're thirsty, okay? So we have a, a, a thirst mechanism for a reason. And so if you're trying to prevent hyponatremia, if I give the athlete the advice, drink when you're thirsty, I think we will prevent hyponatremia in team sports. Now, the downside to that advice is thinking that thirst is always a great guide for hydration, and it's not. It's a great guide for during exercise to prevent hyponatremia, but if you're trying to fully replace the fluids that you've lost, then you have to drink according to your individual sweat losses. And you have to drink more fluid than what you lost because you're gonna pee as you start to rehydrate and that's fluid loss, right? So that's why the NATA recommends that you consume more fluids than what you lost during exercise because of those obligatory water losses as you start to rehydrate. So thirst is a great thing to follow for whether or not you need fluid during exercise, but when it comes to fully rehydrating, that's where you got to know your sweat rate calculations and you do your pre and your post body weight measurements. So, you know, individually how much fluid should I actually recommend to an athlete? Cause just giving everybody the advice, Hey, drink eight glasses of water a day is going to be really bad advice. And you might cause problems for the athlete that doesn't need that much fluid and you're going to under hydrate people that need more fluid than that. And so when you consider hydration, individualize it that's probably the best advice that we can give uh, for full rehydration but during exercise absolutely follow your thirst mechanism and you'll prevent that hyponatremia from occurring and i also saw primarily i always saw this in football for the most part but the idea that if you're carrying around like basically a gallon of water and you have to drink that or you're not doing your job as an athlete i would highly 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 discourage that behavior because i know there's definitely absolutely. some i know there's definitely some team things and dynamics and I get it, but if you're an AT with the ability to influence that, I, that's a behavior I really want to see go away and never come back. Right, and I think, uh, not to pick on anybody, but I think LSU released some photos of the water jugs with lines like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., 12, et cetera, and expecting players to drink that much fluid by those time points. That is really bad advice. And you don't ever want to push fluids on anyone uh, because, again, if you individualize fluid replacement, that's your best case scenario because you know here's how much they lost and now here's how much they need to drink. 
And so just telling people to drink according to a time without factoring in how much fluid they actually need is wildly dangerous. So yes, please stop that practice. Anybody who's doing that or seeing that uh, out there. All right. So just real quick, practical application. You know, I want my athletes to drink to thirst. I want them to have free access to water. How do I deal with some of the coaches that think, oh, well, he's just going over there to get out of practice. Like, how do I manage both of those where that player might be just going over there to be lazy, but they may just be drinking to thirst and educating the coach, educating the, the player. So give me a little bit of practical advice as we kind of round this out. I think the practical aspect is making sure when you communicate with that coach, it's uh, the words you use and not just saying that, hey, we all know drinking the thirst and things of that are obviously what we want to do, but more using verbiage and saying, telling this coach, hey, this athlete is drinking at this point in time because it's what's in their best interest. Because now if a coach is going to fight you on that, they have to make the argument of why that isn't in their best interest. And I think what you'll find is a lot of coaches actually lose the appetite to have that discussion because that's not a discussion they're willing to have, um, right? It's not trying to be combative, but in this situation, we have evidence and unfortunately cases that death has occurred um, from, from both sides. And the NATA is very clear about not using water as punishment. I believe the NCAA is as well, and I'm sure many high school associations are as well. Um, so we also need to do what's in the best interest of our athletes um, in that nature. And typically you'll find coaches saying like, okay, but on the AT side is also making sure that the only time an intervention is occurring for that athlete isn't at practice. So maybe we do see somebody that may be having some hydration issues um, or electrolyte replacement issues. So I think ATs can help themselves by saying, hey, he's got to get water at this certain time during, say, football practice. But here's also his intervention throughout the day leading up to here. So at least the coach knows, hey, he's not just showing up to practice and you know, hanging out by the water cooler because he doesn't want to run hills or participate in drills or things like that. I would agree with all of that. I think a lot of it comes down to education. And as I teach our kids here at CMU, you know, I get that we as athletic trainers don't want to be perceived as water boys, but, or girls. And so uh, as I tell our kids, you know, giving an athlete water or having it easier to drink because it's available to them is providing a amazing service to that athlete and so it is not beneath you to provide fluids to athletes it's crucially important for all the reasons that we've discussed just from the cramp angle and so i think a lot of education is involved here of you know students and even coaches that you know giving water is more than just you know giving water and you can say, here are all the physiological changes that are occurring when you allow somebody to drink coach. And here's some research that shows your players are gonna perform better. And so I think we have a very visceral reaction to the idea that you know athletic trainers only help people because we're water boys. And so we have a resistance of wanting to do that. But when you understand the importance of water and what it does for thermal regulation and maintaining blood pressure and human performance issues and all of those things, you start to realize very quickly how important water is for the exercising athlete. And I hope when coaches and other athletic trainers understand that point, they kind of lose that, well, I'm just doing this because I'm the water boy. That's not true at all. But water is so important 
for that athlete to maintain performance, to maintain blood pressure, maintain thermal regulatory capacity, that you're doing a huge service for that athlete by helping them consume water. Because we know there is a big social factor to drinking. If the water's far away, I'm just going to be like, ah, screw it. I'm already tired. I don't want to go run a hundred yards to get a drink. And so maybe I predispose myself to other injuries because now I don't have as much plasma volume to donate to sweating. And so we do a great service to our athletes when we provide them water very easily, as well as water that's better to drink or taste better so they consume more. And so education is hugely important in this area. All right. I know Caitlin Marie Pakala, she said she loves Dr. Miller so much knowledge and is an amazing teacher. There's also probably like a, a dozen people joining us live. David McDonald, Johnny Vincent, Perry Denny, Owen Eiswinger, Stephen Moss, Joe Scarcella. And then there's lots of other people uh, liking or sharing the, the post as well. So thanks for joining us live. Um, and, and again, I think this comes back to there's not one solution for every single person. I think you guys have covered that multiple times throughout this. And I think it's important for us to remember that hydration is important, that doing the uh, cramp, uh, the plyometrics is a good preventative step that we have to educate. We have to, for, you know, a seven o'clock game, you have to start at lunchtime or earlier. Um, and if you really want to get nerdy, you can do the sweat rate ratios and, um, the weighing and all that other different stuff like that. If you have someone who has a real issue, keeping a, a cramping journal is another great opportunity for you to educate and to, for them to advocate for, Hey, this is your life. This is your body. You need to know and understand how and what and why and what we can do to prevent. Um, any other final practical sum up tips you guys got? I think, I think you nailed most of it. <laughs> that was a good summary. Well done. All right. Well, Dr. Kevin Miller, Mike McKinney on the Sports Medicine Broadcast. Um, I do want to ask that you go and share this with a friend. So maybe you're listening to a podcast and you say, hey, check this one out. Let me show you how to download it. So don't just like just mention, yeah, I listen to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, but say, hey, let me show you how to subscribe. Let me show you how to download. So, you know, whether that's going to the website, whether that's going, you know, pulling, taking their phone and opening up the little podcast app that's on Apple phones or showing them how to get onto the Google Play music store if you're using an Android phone and download podcasts on there. Um, just, but actually show them how to download or subscribe to the podcast. And then that way they can keep up to date with you and you guys can even talk about what it is later. So just the call to action here is show someone how to subscribe or download the podcast. Um, Dr. Kevin Miller, last time you gave us your email and I have that linked here. It's M I L L E five K at C M I C H dot E D U. That's still the best way to get hold of you, right? I think you cut out a little bit there. Um, yeah, my email is M I L L E five K at cmich.edu and yeah if anybody has any questions feel free to email me or you can do a simple google search for me on uh, or go to central michigan university and look for me too or call me if you want to have a discussion too i'm more than willing to talk to athletic trainers or anybody else who might be willing to uh, listen to this podcast and hopefully give you some more unique individualized advice if you need it and very good and mike is m M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y at northeastern.com. So it's M is for Mike and McKinney, as is in his last name. That's all one word. And then at northeastern.com. Correct, Mike? 
dot edu. Dot edu. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, M dot McKinney at Northeastern. So don't forget the dot. Okay. <laughs> See, I was trying to do it from memory and I should have just copy and pasted it. So M dot McKinney at Northeastern dot edu. And then, of course, if you want to get a hold of me on pretty much all the social media platforms, I'm Mr. Jeremy Jackson. I love getting those. And then if you're watching live, you see right behind me, uh, Chris Weidman sent me a shirt from Iowa. So if you got shirts, I would love to add them to my wall if you're watching live there. So um, lots of different resources. And hopefully we can get some of those links or some of those articles that, that they mentioned here. And I can put them in the show notes, but no guarantees there. Some of our partners are Frio Hydration. Dragonfly Max, Myotech, Hoist, Hydration, and Medbridge. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash crampingneurology. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash crampingneurology with Dr. Kevin Miller, with Mike McKinney, and me, Jeremy Jackson. And that is a wrap. Thanks.